David Solomon. Podcasts on topics ranging from Jewish history and the Bible to Jewish mysticism, philosophy and thought. To find out about David's talks, books and more, visit davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. I want to talk about these incredible stories. We're not going to get into the historicity of them per se. The rest of the talk will be historical, but just these first two or three women I want to talk about uh, are come to us textually in different places. And what we do know about them is that they were important during the Hasmonean period. And what that tells us is that the Hasmonean period was a period where women were seen as powerful and informed and proactive figures on the world stage. What am I saying? I'm saying that in the Hasmonean era, the fact that these stories were circulating gives us a window into how they view the role of women in history. The first woman is Yehudit. We do not know the historical veracity of Yehudit. Uh, it is a book, the Book of Judith, which might have been originally written in Hebrew, was not included in the Tanakh. And when is the Book of Yehudit set? Those of you who are familiar with the Book of Yehudit, it is the Book of Yehudit is set way before. It is set here under the Assyrian occupation. Remember, it was the Babylon the Persians that we spoke about defeated the Babylonians, but the Babylonians themselves had defeated the Assyrians. So we have a story that comes down to us that was very, very much circulating in the Hasmonean period, particularly at the beginning, to do with the revolt. And it is the book of Yehudit, and Yehudit is a woman, obviously, like all these other women in Jewish history, very beautiful. And she was, the basic short of the story is, is that she and her um, handmaiden, kind of like a female assistant, managed to um, get themselves, uh, she, she uh, very, very religious and, and spiritual woman, but she decided to um, dressed it up a bit and caught the attention of a general called Holophanes. But Yehudit gets herself into the camp and she seduces Holophanes, seduces not sexually but with the kind of in a teasing kind of way so that he would come to think that he did have a chance with her. And she, he finds himself alone one night in his tent and he gets drunk. She feeds him cheese, very similar to the Yael story, and he falls asleep. She takes out his big clanking sword and she lops off his head. Then she puts her head in her bag and she and her servant hop-footed out of the camp. And in the next morning, the Jews decide, well, we may as well attack. And then the uh, Syrian soldiers go to Holophanes' tent. And they find his blood-soaked corpse without a head. They all freak out and they run away. Big victory for the Jews. So Yehudit becomes a big story for the Hasmoneans in their revolt. Their revolt happens around 165. That whole period from 170 to 165 uh, under Antiochus IV are the Seleucid persecutions and she becomes a very well-known story that uh, goes on to influence the way the Hasmoneans look, look at women. Now there's two other stories that I want to very, very briefly cover because I'm not, this is not really what this second talk is about, but I want to cover them because they are important in the link between what happened previously 
and the Hasmonean dynasty. One is the story of Hannah and her seven sons. We have two versions of this story, which in a sense can make us question its historical veracity, or you might go in the other direction and say, that means there's some truth behind it, but it somehow has got cross-wired in the historical transmission. We certainly know of this story here because one version of it is recorded in the book of Maccabees. And what that story is, is a woman who, actually, she's not known uh, as Hannah there. She's known as Miriam Batanchu, but later on she's called Hannah by the rabbis. She has seven sons. Sorry? I believe she's called Miriam Batanchum in the book of Maccabees. Yes, but in, the, in, in, in later Chazal, when they retell it in Midrash and Talmud later, her name is Hannah. She has seven, but I'll, I'll get on to that in a second. That's the second version. The first version is in the book of Maccabees. She has seven, she has seven sons. And Antiochus IV says to her sons, they want... They want, they says to the older son that you need to eat pork. And he refused to eat pork and he's killed. And the second time, the third time, they all refuse to eat pork, right down to the little one who looks at his mother and his mother says, Go follow your brothers. So he dies as well. And we don't really know what happens to her, but we assume that she didn't really take that whole story too well. Uh, that is one version, but that version, once again, irrespective of the historicity of it, what we are looking at it historically, is how that story highlights the crucial role played by women in passive resistance. Now, we know that the Maccabees eventually moved from passive resistance to full-blown military, active, violent resistance to the Seleucid occupation. But passive resistance is embodied in that figure of Hannah. And the, the second version of that Hannah is told, is set much later. So it's the same person. It's the same story. story. All right? Is that the one who's bending down? Correct. So that is set much later, well after the destruction of the temple during the Hadrianic persecutions. That's in the 130s, that's the whole Bar Kokhba story and so on, but the Hadrianic persecutions, which were extremely harsh. And in that story, in that version rather, it is not the eating of pork, it is the bowing down to an idol. So you can see there is a shift of concern here. And in the second version, we do know what happens to her because she kills herself. She goes to, she kills herself in the way that many women kill themselves in the ancient world, it would appear, is that you jump off the top story of a building. I mean, how high are buildings? But I suppose three stories is enough to kill yourself. And that's how she did that. So that story, though, once again, there is a theme of relating women to passive resistance which is in contrast to Yehudit, which is a woman involved in active or violent resistance to an occupation. 
So that's not really the main theme of what I'm going to talk about in this second talk, but I wanted to cover those two stories because, once again, they highlight what the Hasmoneans thought of the cruciality of women in, and the role they played in resistance. The other story of Hannah. So there's two Hannahs. One Hannah has two versions. And then the second Hannah is the sister of the Maccabean brothers. And the story there is that they, for, for many years, because what happened was that the Seleucid occupiers had a practice which is known as droit de seigneur. You're familiar with what droit de seigneur is? The right of the governor. And that is that when a couple get married, he has the right to... Um, to have sexual relations with the bride before her husband does. Uh, horrendously humiliating and so the governor would come to the wedding and uh, in a sense deflower the bride before the wedding night. That horrendous humiliating and oppressive practice was actually carried on in a number of locations. This is what the Seleucids were doing and as a result Jews for quite a number of years didn't hold any weddings. So the first thing is that the Maccabees, the Maccabees hold a wedding and that itself was a sign of resistance. And at the wedding, Hannah, who was a sister of the Maccabean brothers, gets up at her wedding. I mean, you've got to imagine this. <laughs> what, how this would look. I mean, it would be no less startling then than if this happened even today in contemporary Melbourne, but she gets up at her wedding and she stands up in front of everyone, she says, I have some things to say, not giving a speech, and she rips open her dress and strips herself naked at her own wedding in front of all the guests. The brothers are outraged, they're going to rush up and, and kill her, and she says, she said, it does not seem to concern you that the governor is going to come and have his way with me, but you're so worried about the fact that I appear naked in front of my family and friends. That story precipitated the revolt. Now we know, we know that the classic story is, you know, some dude came and offered a sacrifice in Modi'in and, and, and um, Matityahu killed him and all the rest of it. That was certainly one of the igniting flames of the revolt. But we're told in other literature as well, in Midrashic literature, that it was the story of Hannah, a woman, doing this. Now what's also fascinating about that, and without getting too much into it, because we have a lot to talk about in this talk, but the fascinating thing about that, there is still in society today the idea of particularly allied with feminist thinking and with, uh, with uh, the role of women in passive and active protest is the idea of the naked protest. You can see that in relation to furs, you see it in relation to, um, what was the, what's the name of that, um, that group in Moscow? Uh, Pussy Riot, whatever it's called, right? And the, but, but, but right around the world, there is this notion of the naked protest. Why? Because the naked female form is itself uh, a statement and a form of protest and resistance against 
patriarchal oppression. Men um, in power want to cover women up, and so uncovering them, uh, their, their self uh, uncoverment is a form of protest. I'm just, there are many, many issues there that I'm highlighting that, that are historically interesting, but for the Hasmoneans, these were big stories. And the Hasmoneans generally raised the level of women. Now, here's where I'm going to start. And I want, I'm going to take you on a bit of a trip here. I'm going to wipe this timeline. And I'm going to zoom in even further. All right? And we'll call this 100. So this is minus 100, and this is zero, all right? Hopefully this will give us a bit more room to work with. Hanukkah. Yep. Approx. Minus 165. But it's not all over Red Rover then, as you know. The next 20 or 30 years, there's a lot of archiparchiot. They're going back and forth with the Greeks, with other considerations. But basically, by the time you get to around 140, 135, the Hasmonean dynasty has managed to establish a fairly secure and completely independent republic. Everybody follow that? So you have Yehuda, and Yehuda is killed, and then you have Yonatan. Yonatan is killed, and Yonatan is succeeded by Shimon. Yeah, and then Shimon is succeeded in around uh, Shimon is not yet calling himself king but he is Kohen Gadol and he is definitive ruler he's minting his own coins everybody is aware that there is a completely independent kind of priestly republic entity in Judea no one is really ruling over Shimon and when Shimon dies Shimon is succeeded by his son he is followed by his son. His son is Yohanan Hyrcanus. John Hyrcanus. Yohanan Hyrcanus is a big ruler. Now, he also didn't call himself king, but he was effectively king in almost everything but name. He was high priest. He was tetrarch. He was the absolute ruler of Judea. And he had no overlords, no Greeks, no Romans, no Persians, no nothing. It was a completely autonomous, independent regime. Yohanan Hyrcanus died in 103, minus 103. And what happened then? He was succeeded by his son, Yehuda Aristobulus I. He didn't call himself Yehuda Aristobulus the first, obviously. He was just succeeded by Yehuda Aristobulus. He was just going to Yehuda Aristobulus. And Yehuda Aristobulus was an absolute... What's the word? Asshole. He put... He put his brothers and his mother in prison, which is a despicable practice common throughout the ancient world amongst oriental despots, so that 
they will not provide any threats or competition to his rule. Now, I've got to tell you, and he let his mother starve to death in prison. I've got to tell you, it is very bad karma if you let a Jewish mother starve to death in prison. Yehuda Aristobulus himself, after a year, suffered a terrible and agonizing illness that killed him. When he died, and he would have died when? Well, around 102. Yeah, but he came to the throne, let's say, in 103, and he died in 102. When he died, the question was, and he was childless. So who was going to succeed him? Very good, but how? Because his wife, Yehuda Aristobulus's wife, a woman we know as, well, she's known in English as Salome Alexandra, but we know her as Shlomtzion. We know her as Shlomtzion Hamalka. When you walk around Tel Aviv or Yerushalayim and you see a street called Rehov Shlom Tzion Amalka, this is not just a random street. If we were going to talk about one person in the whole of the second, one woman in the second temple period that whose personality and career dominates, it would be Shlom Tzion. And she is a historical figure that is very, very poorly understood widely in Jewish history. Shlom Tzion was married to Yehuda Aristobulus and when he died after only a year in power she went to the prison and she released his brothers and she married one of them. She married Alexander Yanai. Yep. She made him king and she became his queen and of course Alexander Yanai uh, is a very complex figure in his own right uh, it would not be fair to say really that Shlomtzion co-ruled with him she didn't uh, but sh because obviously his entire throne was indebted to her, she definitely had an extremely powerful role within the rule of, uh, of the Hasmonean kingdom. Yehuda Aristobulus, by the way, was the first Hasmonean leader to call himself king. Alexander Yanai, a complex figure, and he also ruled for a long period. He ruled for well over 25 years, he ruled for about 27 years, he ruled till minus 76. Always remember this. Everything in the late Second Temple period is backgrounded by this immense struggle within the Jewish world about what Judaism actually is. There were two primary visions emerging of what Judaism is. One said it's all about the temple. 
It's all about the priests. It's all about the Kohanim. It's about the rituals, the sacrifices. Yes, everyone in the Jewish world is important. But what's really going on is this temple in Jerusalem that is at the center of it all. And that's the most important thing. And we have a literal reading of the Torah. And if the Torah says it, that's it. We don't buy into any of these ideas like the Olam Haba or Tchiat Ametim or Mashiach or any of these other ideas. For us, we've got the temple, we've got the Korbanot, and that's the way the Jewish people worship God. The Romans and Greeks, they have lots of gods they make sacrifices to. We have one, and we have a cult called the priestly cult. They were known, that group, which was immensely powerful, were known as the Sadducees. The alternative vision were, belonged to, and much more popularist, belonged to uh, the um, scribes and teachers and so on who were formulating and transmitting this idea that the written Torah is accompanied by an oral dynamic explanation that can be set up on principles, that can be applied, that can be adapted, that is not written down. And it's not, the temple is important, but the focus really of the Jewish world is not about the temple, it's about the Torah. They, of course, went on to take on the famous brand name of... Well, in the one sense, they were the Prushim, they were the Pharisees. We buy that picture from the New Testament, the Sadducees set up against the Pharisees. But they went on to take on the famous brand name of the rabbis, who we know as Chazal. Now, Shlomtion's brother was Shimon ben Shetach, who was obviously a Pharisaic leader. He was allowed access to the palace. But overall, these late Hasmonean leaders, such as Alexander Yanai, definitively aligned themselves with the Sadducees. The Sadducees, they saw their... Oh, by the way, by the way, when Shlomtzion, when Shlomtzion married <coughs> her deceased husband's brother, People were extremely upset about that. The rabbis were very upset about that. Why? Don't we have a law that says that if a, in the Torah, that says that if a brother die, that if a, a man dies childless, then his widow marries his brother? Why were the rabbis upset about that? Because that law does not apply to a Kohen Gadol. A Kohen Gadol. And Alexander Yonai, as with all the other Hasmonean rulers to this point, called themselves, were calling themselves Kohen Gadol and acted in that capacity. It was a priestly kingdom. The Kohen Gadol was the head of state. And the Kohen Gadol can can't even marry a widow, can only marry a Betulah. Now, um, but nevertheless, she married him. He aligned himself with the Sadducees. That famous incident that you would have read about, that you would be familiar with Alexander Yanai. If you only know one story from Alexander Yanai, it will be this one. And that is what? That is the story of the famous 
episode that is historically true. It's recorded in numerous places. Josephus writes about it. Everybody writes about it. Alexander Yanai coming to the temple on Sukkot. You familiar with that? Just to give you an idea of the depth of this. He comes to the temple on Sukkot. And on Sukkot in the temple they had a famous festival called Simchat Beta Shoeva. It was like a massive water fight. Right? He comes and he says... We're not doing Simchat Beta Shoeva this year. That's a Pharisaic nonsense. And 5,000 people in the courtyard of the temple pelted the king with their etrogs. In response to which, Alexander Yanai turned around to his soldiers and his militia and he said, slaughter them all. And 5,000 people died in the temple courtyard on that day. He then went and effected a civil war against the Pharisaic factions, including the crucifixion of 800 Pharisaic leaders. An entire generation of rabbinic intelligentsia were wiped out by a Jewish king. People who today extol the territorial ambitions of Alexander Yanai and say we need a leader like that should be wary. But that is not the message that we send through history. Alexander Yanai carries a war against the against the Prushim, against the rabbinic factions. As I said, his brother-in-law, Shlom Tzion's husband, his uh, brother, is still allowed access to the palace but it is an extremely tense time. And in minus 76, Alexander, Alexander Yanai dies. Now they have two sons. They actually have three sons, but they're two main sons. Sorry, what year was that? 76. Minus 76. Shlom Tzion is married to Alexander Yanai, right? So Alexander Yanai, and they've got two sons that are important here. One is, one is John Hyrcanus, Yochanan Hyrcanus II, because of course his granddaddy was the big Yochanan Hyrcanus. That's why I went back that far in the lead up to it. And the other is Yehuda Aristobulus, yep, the second, named after his f uncle. All right. Neither of those two men were really ready or seen to be fit to assume the mantle of leadership on the death of Alexander Yanai. This is the key point. We are go they are going to come back into history and cause all sorts of chaos. But when Alexander Yanai died, and according to Shlomtzion, this was what he said on his deathbed. But of course, if she was going to say that, who's going to argue with her? She took over the kingdom and became queen in her own right. Not queen as in I'm married to the king, but queen as in I am the sole ruler. Not the first Jewish queen in history, of course. But to this point, if we look to Tanakh, our previous experiments with queens had not gone so well. Who am I thinking of? 
Atalia. But here's the big deal with Shlom Tzion. Shlom Tzion ruled, unfortunately, for only nine years. Everybody, and I mean everybody, extols her rule as an incredible window of an amazing age in Jewish history where for a decade or so we had remarkably stable society and well-governed society and most importantly peace between all of the various factions within the Jewish world. Shlom Tzion was so profoundly regarded that the rabbis tell us that during her time of rule even nature itself changed to reflect the goodness of the times. Sorry? They say it in the Talmud in a number of different places when they talk about Shlom Tzion. I can get you the exact references if you want. Uh, in other words, the GDP went up, people were happy. Now what she did when she first came to power was she said to this, she said to the Pharisaic faction, I know that you have very good reason to hate my husband. He brutalized you. But we are going to have a state funeral for him and you are going to attend and you are going to be respectful. In return for that, she herself was quite religious. She personally was allied with the Pharisaic faction through her brother's connections, obviously, and her own family background. But she said, you will have the dominant role in the Sanhedrin, in the ruling parliament, but we are going to finish this war now. And the only way I can do that is by understanding the importance of symbol. And at that state funeral, because he was a king in Israel, you didn't like him, but he was king. And you're going to come and you're going to attend. This was a massive turning point. It's also a massive turning point in the way in realizing the importance of symbols when it comes to reconciliation. Shlom Tzion was an incredible ruler. And a standout figure in the whole of Second Temple history. It's kind of like she was the culmination of everything that the Hasmonean dynasty had been working towards. But I do not believe, and most historians do not believe, that Shlom Tzion would have been able to affect this kind of rule and been able to come to power if not for what we had been speaking about earlier, which is the whole Hasmonean ideology of the rise of women. That comes back to what I said in the first talk when I talked about, and I'm not going to go over this again, but when we talked about a possible date of composition for Esther as being as late as the Hasmonean period, it underscores the whole of the circulation of stories about Yehudit and about Hannah in relation to women. So the idea that a queen would come to power here does not overly surprise us and did not surprise the Hasmoneans and in a sense was seen by the society as kind of a natural development.
but, 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 but it's not enough that all of that background would justify her rise to power. She also had to govern well. She was in her own right an outstanding queen and the application of the principles of governance were amazing uh, under the rule of Shlomtzion. Anyone who wants to research that independently will find that this is kind of like the, the ultimate uh, rule of the Second Temple. A completely independent Yehuda under a queen whose constant striving was for the betterment of society, not territorial acquisition. She did not make the territorial wars that her ex-husband, that her, her deceased husband was making. She did do one defensive uh, campaign against Damascus, but for, most, for all of her rule, she wasn't interested in military campaigns. She was interested in the welfare and peace and productivity of her society. This was a total shift, not the classic oriental despot that we had seen, which the Hasmonean kings had tried to emulate, but a different sort of rule. Unfortunately, when Shlomtzion died is when the land of Israel became plunged into a civil war between these two figures. The land of Israel was plunged into that civil war for four years between the surviving sons of Shlomzion. Eventually leading to the invitation of the Romans to come in in around minus 63. But at a certain point in that civil war, there was a truce. And in that truce, they, well, in that truce, they decided that one way that might be possible to fix up this power struggle was through a marriage. And the daughter of Yohanan Hyrcanus married the son of Yehuda Aristobulus. It didn't work. It didn't work, the uniting of these two houses, but it's an important fact to remember. I'm going to come back to it. But I just want to refresh it and background us again. Back here in the heyday of Yohanan Hyrcanus I, you see, the Hasmoneans made some awful mistakes. And one is that back here under Yohanan Hyrcanus, the state of Yehuda forcibly converted an entire neighboring nation called, called, the Idumeans. They basically circumcised all the men and threw the entire nation in the River Jordan and said, there's your mikvah and you're all now Jewish. It would be exactly the same as if we, in 1967, after conquering the West Bank of Yehuda and Shomron, had said to all of the Palestinians living there, you're now Jewish. When Yohanan Hirkanus did it, Yohanan uh, Hirkanus did it. That had some very bad karma. One of the descendants of that conversion 
rose to a position of tremendous power under Yohanan Hirkanus II, who was fighting this civil war and who eventually, eventually, Pompey awarded the power to, so that during the 50s, the minus 50s, Yohanan Hirkanus, who's not allowed to be called king, is now subservient to Rome because independence has ended. But he has a very strong advisor who is an Idumean, an Idumean descendant from that conversion. That survivor and that advisor to John Hyrcanus II is Antipater. Antipater was a very powerful ruler. Antipater has a son. That son for most of the 50s and 40s is running around in the north of Israel in the Galil with his own private militia causing havoc. He is of course at one point summoned by the Sanhedrin. He turns up at the Sanhedrin with 25 henchmen and totally cows the Sanhedrin into submission. They were actually going to censure and even punish him for his brutalization of the north of Israel but he turns up with his own private militia of the Sanhedrin and bullies them. In the whole chaos and mess that happens in the latter years of Yohanan Hirkanus II's not so effective rule, this individual rises to power and in the vacuum around about the year 4041, he seizes power over the whole area of Israel. His name is Herod. Now, Herod is an Idumean. His father is Antipater. He has no real claim to the throne or to rule. He needs legitimacy. How is he going to get that legitimacy? How is he going to get that legitimacy? He marries, but who does he marry? He has to marry Bullseye, the child of that union of the pact. That union that back here in the 60s, 25 years earlier, had been organized as a peace truce that never happened. They had a daughter, and that daughter is Miriam, who we know as, well, she's known in English as Mariamne the first, but this is Miriam Ha-Chashmonait, because she was totally, <coughs> total. she had every single drop of her blood was total pure Hasmonean royalty. Her grandfather... Her two grandfathers were Yochanan Hyrcanus and Yehuda Aristobulus. <coughs> now, it also didn't hurt Miriam's uh, general profile is that she was, of course, stunning. Yeah, beautiful. Not just, not just average beautiful, but many a number of historical sources talk about how she was head and shoulders the most beautiful woman 
uh, that uh, of the age and one of the most beautiful women of the ancient world. Herod, of course, was completely besotted with her, apart from the fact that he saw it as deeply in his political interest. Now, she was, she was betrothed to Herod from a very early age. She, that happened by her family because her family saw in Herod the best chance of survival for themselves. Remember that Herod's father had been the advisor of Johann Hyrcanus II. However, the real turning point is that when Herod finally took Yerushalayim, and it wasn't simple because there were other Hasmonean interests that were fighting over Jerusalem, that is a complex picture we're not going into now, but in around 4041 he needed to take Jerusalem and he wanted to arrive in Jerusalem already married to Miriam, so he married her round about then, round about 40. She may have only been, she may have only been uh, a young teenager. She may have only been around 12 or 13 at the time. The real turning point, the first real turning point for Herod and Miriam's relationship is in minus 37. What happens in minus 37? Herod has to, sorry? Herod has to get verification for his rule as well as answer other questions from the Roman rulers. He doesn't have to go back to Rome to get that verification. Where is the Roman ruler he needs to get verification of his status and his ability to rule? Remember that Iudea now is well within the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire needs someone powerful. They need someone to collect their taxes. They need someone to keep order. They need someone to rule over them. Is that person going to be Herod? Maybe. But Herod has to go and justify himself. Where does he go? In minus 37, Rome is ruled by three people. One is, oh, yes. one is sitting in Rome, one in North Africa, and one in Egypt. He has to go and see Mark Antony. Mark Antony, at the time, of course, part of the triumvirate, is sitting with Cleopatra in Egypt. Herod goes to Mark Antony. When he goes to see Mark Antony, he takes Miriam and he installs her under guard with her family in Masada. He puts them in Masada and he says to the guy looking after them, if Mark Antony kills me, because he's either going to appoint me king or he's going to kill me, kill them. Right now, Herod is at Mark Antony and he has left that rule with his uh, guard, a guy called Joseph, and Joseph uh, stupidly, he ends up telling Miriam this. And then tries to cover it up by saying, oh, it's only because Herod loves you so much. Uh, anyway, obviously when Herod came back, she totally lost it at him. He had Joseph killed. What is amazing is, is that we have this story twice because it happened twice. When, remember what happened to Mark Antony? 
No, he killed himself. Right? Why did he kill himself? Because he lost the Battle of Actium. The Battle of Actium in minus 31 is a big turning point in history. He lost to Octavian. Octavian went on to become Augustus. He lost. Herod now has to go and present himself before Augustus. The guy who famously said it would be better to be Herod's dog than one of his family members. Once again, he installs Miriam and he says to the guards, if Octavian kills me, kill her. And uh, it was following that event where she found that out again. And uh, Herod actually accused her of infidelity with the guy that had been in charge of looking after her, a charge that is very unlikely to be true. Remember that Miriam hated Herod. She hated him because uh, he'd killed most of her family. Uh, she had a brother that was very popular. Cleopatra liked the Hasmonean family. She got the brother appointed Cohen Gadol. Herod had him drowned in the pool because he was becoming too popular. That was one of the things he had to answer to Mark Antony on those charges. Uh, but in the end, in minus 29, Herod had Miriam Achashmonait executed. He so deeply regretted having done that, that he spent the rest of his life, in a sense, mourning for her. He certainly was depression inconsolable for months afterwards because he had done that, but he did it. Remember that Herod was a very effective ruler, but he was one of the biggest psychos ever to rule over the Jewish people. He killed everybody that he thought was even remotely a threat. Um, and he, including most of the members of his own family, he married 10 different women. Miriam Achashmonait is the first and probably the one that Herod loved the most. The rabbis comment on this. They tell us, you know, the rabbis don't hold back. They tell us that um, Herod had the body of Miriam embalmed and for years later would uh, take out her body and uh, do perverse things with it. Um, the, exactly. Um, which might actually say more about the rabbis than about uh, mm -hmm. the historical veracity of that. But certainly Herod was... Um, deeply conflicted about his relationship with Miriam Hashmonaid. But, but, but one thing about Miriam Hashmonaid that's important is that she was the one person in Herod's life that was able to speak her mind to him. Everybody else was completely terrified of even being in Herod's presence, let alone telling Herod what they actually thought was going on let alone dissenting from him and arguing with him, Miriam Achashmonait was the only one. And of course, was his ultimate avenue of legitimacy to the throne. The other, now Herod married 10 women, I can't go through them all, but the other woman that I want to just touch upon that Herod did marry, um, that is kind of interesting, uh, is later he marries another woman called Miriam. This is the Miriam, his second Miriam, and she's kind of interesting. Her father, her father was a Kohen Gadol, uh, Shimon, but he wasn't made Kohen, he wasn't Kohen Gadol prior to Herod meeting uh, her. 
She was, of course, uh, a, 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 a beautiful woman, and Herod became enamoured with her, but realised that even for Herod, it would be um, a bit outrageous if he just, you know, took her. So he decided I'd better marry her. And, but she's a bit low in status, so what I'll do, her father's a priest, I'll make him the Kohen Gadol, and then that raises her status, and she would be the right sort of person that a king could marry. So her father became Kohen Gadol, basically as a result of that betrothal. Now, what is interesting, oh, but of course, just, just, while, just back on Miriam I, they did have children, their two sons also were later killed by Herod, so if you're wondering, did he have any children? They did, but Herod killed them. So there was no continuation through Miriam HaShemunayit. But with Miriam II, he also had children. Now, Herod suspected at various points most of his children plotting against him. If he found out about it, he would have them executed. There was one basic uh, son that, towards the end of Herod's life, was going to succeed him, but right, really, really, right at the end of Herod's life, there was a whole plot that was uncovered. Herod ran a commission, and it ended up with the execution of Antipater, this favorite son that was going to succeed the throne. He got killed, and after that, they had another huge commission to find out who knew about the plot. Who knew about the plot? And it transpired in the in this commission that they had, this investigation, that Miriam, we're talking now about the second Miriam, knew about the plot. So if you knew about the plot, that was enough to get you killed. So Herod summoned her and said, what's your explanation? You apparently knew about it. And it's amazing because some secrets are just too dangerous. Some secrets are too dangerous. This is the story of the two Miriams about dangerous secrets. Because on this occasion, but what she said to Herod was brilliant. And Herod could not argue it. If I had told you about that plot, you would only have thought I was telling you that to advance the interests of my own children towards succession. And you would not have believed me. Herod had no argument against that, so he exiled her. Dismissed her father from being Kohen Gadol and exiled her with her children, and, but didn't kill her. Herod is surrounded by, oh, he's surrounded by interesting women. I mean, Herod's mother is on the scene. Herod's sister, Salome, is big time on the scene. They did not, Herod's mother and sister didn't, I mean, I've, I'm just jet skiing over this. You have to understand, I'm just highlighting these women. If you want to go into detail, there is phenomenal detail. Miriam Achashmonait was not liked. She was despised by Herod's mother and his sister, who were, and there was constant intrigue between them. They even told Herod that Miriam Achashmonait had sent a portrait of herself to Mark Antony with the words, if you do happen to kill Herod, then... Uh, I'm going to be single. We don't know whether Muriam Hashmonayit actually did that, but certainly in the view of Herod's mother and sister, they were pouring poison into Herod's ear about Miriam Hashmonayit. In fact, in some ways, it's remarkable that she lasted as long as she did. And only because Herod really, really loved her. If he loved anyone, he loved her, but still killed her. Now, stay with me. 
because it's going to get complicated, but it's fascinating. I'm going to tell you stuff now that's going to bake your noodle in the remaining few minutes that we have. These two women, I think, are the most interesting to us historically if we were going to engage with them. Um, I mean, we're not necessarily aiming to be experts in all ten of Herod's wives, but if we want to have an understanding of the kind of women that were around Herod and what's involved, those two. But I'm, as you know, when Herod died around here, the Romans decided, ah, oh, we're not going to have any more Jewish kings or Herodians. We are going to rule Judea directly. And therefore they set about establishing a series of procurators and governors in Judea that are going to rule on Rome's behalf. There are descendants of Herod. Some of his sons are still around who are given nominal titles. Yeah? Who are given nominal titles. But the effective rule is through the governorships. And as we know... For the first 30 or 40 years of this century, those governors were on the whole awful. Each one a bigger psycho bastard than the one before. And mostly used their positions in Judea to simply extort and abuse the population. That's basically the story going right up to the big revolt in 66. There's no question that it is the constant harassment by these governors of the population as well as the military occupation of Judea that was so awful to the population. We could spend hours of course talking about all this but that's not what I want to touch upon today. I'm talking about women. However, however, there was a window in that of something different because obviously Augustus died and he was followed by, as Emperor of Rome, he was followed by, who came out, who's anyone familiar with Roman history who followed Octa Augustus? Tiberius. After Tiberius, Gaius Caligula. So the interesting thing about Gaius is that when Gaius became emperor, he went, oh, he had been at school with a Herodian. The Herodian boys were sent to Rome for their education. It's a little bit like the way today, you know, Saudi princes will get educated at Oxford, right? Or Cambridge. Herodian boys were sent to Rome for school. So Gaius was at school with a grandson of Herod. So that when Gaius got to the throne, he said to his old school chum, with whom he'd been very friendly at school, a young man called, when I say it, you're going to go, ah, oh. a young man called Agrippa. He said to Agrippa, Agrippa, my old school chum, why don't you go back to Judea and not only rule it, I'm going to make you king. We're going to reinstitute the Herodian kingship. So Agrippa, who was hanging out in Rome just being a dude, went back to Jerusalem and started being king. So we had a window here. And then what happened? Then what happened? In 39, Gaius 
died. That, that whole death of Gaius is a whole thing that involves the Jewish world, which is a story we can't go into now, the death of Gaius. But it just so happens that when Gaius died, Agrippa was in Rome. Agrippa was in Rome because he was trying to get Gaius to rescind the decree that Gaius had made about setting up a massive statue in the temple of himself. Agrippa was then instrumental in the election of the next emperor, who was Claudius. Yep, I have to move quickly now, we're going to run out of time. Claudius said to Agrippa, because you were so instrumental in becoming emperor, you can go back to Judea and I'm going to give you even more territory and more powers. So in fact, in the window of around about year 40 to 44, we had once again a fully restored Jewish king, except this time, unlike Herod, Agrippa was a good guy. And not only was he a good guy, the rabbis liked him. He never actually broke halacha in public. Don't know what he did in the privacy of his own home, but in public he kept Shabbat, he always ate kosher. The rabbis loved him. Now, unfortunately, Unfortunately, and I say unfortunately because it does seem quite unfortunate, in the year 44, Agrippa died quite suddenly. There are all sorts of rumors about that, I can tell you. And although his children were given some limited status symbolically, and some very, very limited autonomy and rule, Basically, after Agrippa died, the Romans reverted to the governorship system. Everybody follow? Yes? Now, Agrippa, Agrippa had two, actually three kids, but maybe more, but the three are very, very important to us. One was, one was his son, Agrippa, who we know is Agrippa II. And his daughter, who is one of the most fascinating women in Jewish history, full stop, and who I have exactly about nine minutes to talk about. So I'm going to talk quickly and I want you to focus on this, because if you do not know this woman, you need to. Anyone know who I'm about to talk about? She's known by several names. She's known by the name Berenice. She's also known by her Roman name, Julia Crispina. She has a Hebrew name well, but it's not coming to me at the moment. Berenice was unlucky in marriage. She had a sister, Drusilla, who I'll talk about in a second. Drusilla had the looks. Berenice had the smarts. But she was unlucky in love. A kind of a bit of a tortured personality. She got married off several times. She actually ended up in three different marriages. One of those marriages, one of those marriages was to a guy called Marcus Alexander from Alexandria, whose brother was Julius Tiberius Alexander. Does anyone know who Julius Tiberius Alexander was? Julius Tiberius Alexander was a Jewish boy from Alexandria who rose up in the Roman army to become second in command to Titus at the destruction of Jerusalem. That marriage didn't work out, or he died. She got married a third time, but at the end of the day, unlucky in love, 
her marriages didn't work out. She ended up back in Jerusalem, living at the palace with her brother Agrippa II, and pretty much co-ruling with him. There are rumours, and they're awful nasty rumours, but apparently everybody in the ancient world was talking about them, that um, Agrippa and Berenice were doing it. Um, but there were so many rumours of incest about different types of royal families that we're very, very um, advised not to really pay too much attention to that. But all historians refer to that, that these rumours were going around. She nevertheless was very close to her brother and they were living in the palace together during the very tumultuous years of 65-66. Because in 65 and 66, as you know, is the breakout of the Great Revolt. And Cestius Gallus, the Roman legate in Syria, sends in an entire legion that gets wiped out by the rebellion army. In 66, the provisional government of Judea, a Jewish government, is set up, um, combined of centrists, some moderates and some hardliners, but mostly headed by moderates. And that is when they decide that they need to fortify Jerusalem because they know that the Romans are going to respond very, very um, forcefully. And of course they do. The emperor at the time is who? Huh? Correct. And Nero sends his top soldier. Who's his top soldier in the entire Roman Empire? Vespasian, and he sends Vespasian with six legions, 60,000 troops. In fact, of course, he comes with four or five, but he's joined by his son, who's in Damascus with a couple of legions, and that is Titus. So Titus and Vespasian come into the land of Israel with six legions, plus all of the other accoutrements that would carry with them, and they systematically, systematically destroy the defences set up by the provisional government. Just as a side question, who was in charge of the, who was commander of the northern defence set up, sent by the provisional government against the Romans in the First Great Revolt? Correct. Josephus. Josephus obviously surrendered. All the resistance crumbled. The, there are riots in Jerusalem against the Herodians. Um, they, Berenice actually went down and addressed the crowd in Jerusalem and tried to remind them that actually they were kind of the good guys because they remember how much you liked our father and we are just trying to do the best and we, we but, but the more that you try and fight the Romans the worse it's going to be why don't we try and make some kind of pact with them and maybe they'll save Jerusalem but they, she only barely, she was nearly killed in those riots. And then she and her brother hot-footed it to the Roman encampments in the north, where they were received by Vespasian. And at the end of the day, the Herodians are Roman allies. And so basically, they were on the Vespasian side of it. Remember, Vespasian and Titus were not running an anti-Semitic campaign. They were simply carrying out a law and order exercise on behalf of the Roman Empire. So the Herodian kings, who had always sided with Rome, it would be perfectly understandable that they would go over to the Roman camp, as did Josephus, because the Herodians always believed that an alliance with Rome was in the best interests of the Jewish people. That's how you understand the whole Herodian mindset. However, the big deal is this. When Berenice 
saw Titus. And when Titus saw Berenice, they totally fell in love. And they, the whole background, backgrounded by the whole of the destruction of Israel, leading up to the siege of Jerusalem in 68, leading up eventually to the destruction of the Bet HaMikdash in 70. The whole thing is just a background to this love affair that was being carried on by Berenice and Titus. It's bizarre. If you're making a film of it, and they should, right? While the Roman army is just destroying everything, this whole love affair is going on, right? Now, what is amazing is that people don't realize Titus, who ends up destroying the temple, is having an affair with a Herodian princess this entire time. Obviously, we know that in 68, which was the year of the four emperors, ends up with Vespasian going back to Rome. Vespasian goes back to Rome to become emperor and Titus finishes the job. When Titus destroys Jerusalem and destroys the temple, according to some historians, including Josephus, by accident, he stays in in, in, in the land of Israel for a little while to help clean up um, things. But eventually, Titus goes back to Rome to have his big procession, Arch of Titus, etc. The climate in Rome was a little bit prickly. Vespasian was only just establishing himself on the throne. Uh, Titus um, was not... Uh, was not uh, in a position to bring Berenice, but as soon as he could, about three years later, Berenice went to Rome and the relationship continued and the affair continued full ball to the point where Vespasian dies, Titus becomes emperor, and it effectively looks like Berenice is going to become the empress of Rome. She was Titus's consort right up to when he became emperor. But shortly after he became emperor, the Senate made clear to him that they were not going to tolerate a Herodian princess as co-consort and empress of Rome. And when Josephus and others write about this, we know that because Josephus was right there, because Josephus was living in Rome while all this was going on. Remember that Josephus had gone back to Rome with the Flavians. Berenice is extremely, extremely important. And she's important also because she demonstrates in contrary position to what a lot of people believe, and I certainly believe when I grew up, when I was growing up and studying in Yeshivot and things like that and hearing how Chazal talk about Titus and all the punishments and what a horrible Rasha and anti-Semite and everything like that, I grew up thinking Titus was one of the biggest anti-Semites in the world, but he wasn't. He was simply carrying out a law and order thing. And in fact, when Titus became ruler, unfortunately Titus didn't rule for too long because they killed him, probably Domitian, his brother. But Titus was... A good ruler and he was had no problem with Jews he got on with Josephus he got on with Berenice he got on with the Herodian family I'm saying this because it's a bit of a revision a bit of startling revision that that I'm indulging in here but 
in a way, I want, you to, I want you to go into the story of Berenice because it is absolutely, utterly fascinating. By the way, Berenice's sister Drusilla also, also married a couple of different times, three times. She married one guy, um, well, she was destined to marry one client king. You know, there's two big powers in the ancient world, Rome and Parthia, and you have these different client kingdoms. She was married off to a client king, but he refused to accept Judaism, which was a condition of her father's. Then they settled, okay, you can marry someone, but he has to agree to get circumcised. This guy, another client king, got circumcised for her because she was so beautiful, he thought it's worth getting circumcised for her. It's a strange reason to get circumcised. And, but eventually that marriage broke down, and eventually she ends up marrying Antonius Felix. Antonius Felix, who of course was the awful, or one of the awful, awful, awful governors of, Jer of, of Judea. Eventually she left him as well. And, and that's where she's mentioned in the New Testament because she, she was there at the trial of, of Saul of Tarsus. These Jewish women are getting around everywhere. But eventually she leaves that marriage and she is living with a guy, unfortunately for her, in uh, Pompeii and Herculeum in 79 when Vesuvius erupts. And she was killed in Vesuvius, one of two famous people, Pliny the, yeah, Pliny the Elder and Drusilla of Judea, who was Bernice's sister and a daughter of Agrippa. I've got to, I've, 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 I've had to jet ski and skim over the women I wanted to talk about in the late Second Temple period. There is one I did not talk about, who's Queen Helene of Adiebene, if we are talking about famous women of the Second Temple. But... Uh, if and when I come back and we deal with women of the Talmudic period, then I can always put her in that slot because that can also belong in there. But I urge you to look into Helena of Ediebene if we are really to do a, uh, a comprehensive look at women of the... Every single thing we talk about in Jewish history is a window and a doorway into further exploration. But here I want to leave you with this realisation. And when you look at everything we've spoken about today, there's a very, very distinct shift that we can see. And I'm finishing on this point. There is a very, very distinct shift that we can see. And that is between the role and empowerment and status of women under the Persian, the Greek to some extent, and the, particularly the Hasmonean periods versus the Roman. And the reversion in the Roman rule to seeing women simply as thing, as 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 not things, as as but as as acquisitions that are used to cement alliances. Women are really only becoming powerful in the Roman world by virtue of being married to someone, not necessarily in their own right. And women are seen. It's a reversion. It's a reversion to the classic patriarchal model of seeing women as simply things that are transacted with in order to effect power, but not as the source of proactive engagement, whether that is passive resistance, violent resistance, or, the, or spiritual resistance, which is uh, the story of women uh, throughout the Hasmonean period and even perhaps the Persian. All right, good. Guys, thank you for the opportunity to talk about these amazing women. I have to tell you that, and I, and I am annoyed I didn't talk about Helene of Ediebenik because she is an astonishing individual, a queen, a client queen that, that, that became utterly dedicated to the Jewish people um, in, in the early 
early decades of the first century. But I've got to tell you that in general, when I, when I talk on Jewish history and when I talk on Jewish history around the world and in different epochs of Jewish history, there is so, such a dearth of knowledge about incredible women that are living in every single era. But the women we've spoken about today are vital and important and I hope that um, in, the course of your, um, in the course of your teaching you manage to transmit some of that passion and some of that knowledge to, uh, to your students. find out more about David Solomon's books, recordings and classes, or to support his work and teachings for just a few dollars a month, visit davidsolomon.online.